welcome to the Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast, Episode 4, Main Street, by Sinclair Lewis. The Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast is your monthly review of a best-selling novel from a century ago. I'm Mike, and with my co-host John, we're going to be exploring these literary gems. As a reminder, this book and all of the books we discuss on this podcast are available for free download from the Gutenberg Project. A link is in the podcast description. As with previous episodes, we'll start by discussing the author and then give a quick plot summary, followed by a general discussion of the book. Then we'll wrap it all up with the definitive book scoring system. But before we get all that little housekeeping, actually, we have no housekeeping. I'll just say thank you all for uh, staying subscribed and uh, staying on this journey with us. I'm excited about all the books we're going to be reading this year. I'm going to pass it back to you. Let's talk about that author. Okay, John. So I'm going to do my best to make this high and tight. Uh, Harry Sinclair Lewis. You've probably heard of him. Some of you may not know why. He was born in 1885. He died in 1951. He was the first U.S. novelist to win the Nobel Prize in literature. So he was born in Sauk Center, Minnesota. His father was a physician and a strict disciplinarian. His mother died when he was six. He was ungainly, unathletic, and I can say this having seen a photo of him as a young man, bug-eyed. He ran away from home when he was 13, and he became a drummer in the Spanish-American War interesting choice. He went to Oberlin, which allowed him to then go to Yale. But then he took time off from there to join Upton Sinclair, no relation, Helicon Home Colony in Englewood, New Jersey, which by the way is where I'm from. Uh, This colony brought together artists and authors and musicians, editors and teachers, uh, while the children were supposed to be raised by a committee of women. Strangely enough, this was not done for socialism. I don't really know what they were trying to get out of it. It was tiny. It didn't run well, and it closed down shortly after Sinclair Lewis left. So this still isn't running? You're not living in this utopia that they set up a century ago? No, unfortunately, I'm not, unless it spread to the entire state of New Jersey, which is possible, but it's not a dream, more of a nightmare, (laughs) which you can say, having grown up here and driven on the parkway in the turnpike. So he became editor of the Yale Literary Magazine. He wrote for several newspapers and magazines, and he sold story ideas to people like Jack London. So he wrote and published his first novel in 1914 when he was 29, and he marries a woman named Grace Hager, an editor at Vogue that same year. So this is a guy who clearly had his sights set pretty high. Uh, they lived in Washington, D.C. They had one son, Wells, who died in World War II. Uh, They got divorced. He married a famous journalist, Dorothy Thompson, in 1928. They had a son, Michael Lewis. They got a divorce in 1942. So he published this book, which was his first massive, massive success called Main Street in October 1920, but it wasn't broadly distributed until 1921, where we read it. It became an instant hit. It sold over 2 million copies and netted him almost $4 million in current dollars. So the books were enormously popular, the ones that he did write. You'll know some of the other ones, Babbitt, It Can't Happen Here, and a variety of others. He did have a lot of critics. So one well-known reviewer said that he was better at writing caricature than character. I thought that was interesting. It was a common theme. Basically, people said when he's writing these characters, he revealed way more than he should have his own anger and judgment about the people that he was writing about. Um, So like I mentioned, he actually won the Nobel Prize The King of Sweden, when presenting the award in 1930, says, it's been said this prize found its way across the Atlantic far too late. If so, it's not because we didn't want to recognize all these authors. It's that there was an embarrassment of riches. By the way, I'm paraphrasing. It's further been said that the award of a prize to your work in which the follies of mankind, not excluding those that are special to America, have been scourged is an expression of some kind of European or Swedish animosity. This is a mistake. It's with living humor that you aim the blows of your scourge, and where there is humor, there is heart. 
It not only the keenly and lively intellect, the masterly design of human shapes, but also the warm, gaily beating heart we've appreciated in you. So there's this great anecdote I thought was relevant. There's St. Clair Lewis. He and his second wife, they're in a fed in New York City. His wife had accused the guest of honor of this event, uh, this fellow author, Theodore Dreiser, of writing an article based on something he stole from her. So there's Lewis, right? And he just won the Nobel Prize. So all these people said, hey, why don't you say some good words about this guy? He stands up. He's a little bit drunk. He says, I feel disinclined to say anything in the presence of the son of a bitch who stole 3,000 words from my wife's book. (laughs) The end of the event, the author comes up to him, Dreisel approaches him, says, I dare you to say that again. So he does. Dreisel smacks the heck out of him, says, say it again. He says it a second time, gets another smack. And then at his own event, the author got kicked out. (laughs) So a couple years later, Lewis succeeded in getting that guy the American Academy of Arts and Letters Special Award for Distinguished Achievement. This is a really interesting guy. So he died alone in Rome in 1951 of either alcoholism or a heart attack or both. His hometown, upon which this novel was based, hated the book. The newspaper wouldn't print a review. Nobody liked it. They were angry, angry at him. But then over time, they came to accept it. They capitalized on it. They built a museum. But just to give you a sense of what this was like, and I think he'd either chuckle or hate this, A journalist visits the town in 2014, notices it hasn't changed that much, and he talks to the executive director of the Chamber of Commerce there. Chamber of Commerce executive director says, look, I mean, his books just aren't all that exciting to modern readers. Now, she's working right across from the museum in the same building. And she says, frankly, we do a lot better with a Brett Favre museum, something like that, but it's what we've got. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the last thing she says, and I think it sums up, I guess it's ironic that so much in our town is named after him. No one knows who he is anymore. And also because it's not like he loved this place. I can imagine the town that he wrote this about, and we'll talk about this, not being super keen to say, good news, we're the source of all of his information for a (laughs) book where he spent hundreds of pages trashing this place. So many (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when he has a bone, he does not let go. He's clearly a good author, and, and we're, we'll talk about that. But he's clearly a good author. He knows a turn of phrase. He knows how to draw you in. I think there's times when he probably really drives it home more than he needs to, and we'll talk about the length of this book later on. But clearly a good author, and he knew it. And therein lies maybe one of the challenges. And, and we've seen a certain amount of hubris with the other authors that we've seen who have been very successful. I was thinking about how you said he made $4 million of this book. And we were talking just a few months ago about the first author to make a million dollars with a book. And once again, we're ramping it up. Oh, first million, million, million is nothing. I got four. That's right. Uh, Very interesting. Kind of sad he died right after World War II and lost his son. So didn't seem like he had the happy ending you'd hope for a very successful Nobel winner. He he might have had the ending that you would have expected, though. (laughs) That's probably true. (laughs) Well, reading into his book, you could see that he was a maybe a damaged soul a little bit. So I could see him drinking away some of his thoughts and emotions. You'd hope that he would unload some of those in in his writing, but maybe instead he dwelled upon them. And that drove him to drinking and drove him to different women and all sorts of problems. Nonetheless, a fascinating character, very successful. And uh, compared to some of our previous authors, 
not a complete scumbag. No, so not nearly as creepy. <laughs> we we didn't have any photographs of family members in the nude. We didn't have random weird divorces and then just passive aggressive books about how your wife dies. So that's a win. I'll take it as a win. He might not have liked anyone enough to actually write about them. <laughs> so I haven't read anything else that he's written. So I don't know if we're going to come across that, depending on how long this podcast goes. He may have some more books later on. I haven't looked further down the line. I'll have to. You say you've read some more of his work. Yeah, I read Babbitt many years ago as part of a uh, political science class that I was in. Uh, and we'll get to that too. But it, it really was a fascinating read. It wasn't quite as long. But I, I was familiar with his style of writing. By the time he had written that, he was a little further on in his career. But I've got to say, this was um, probably the undiluted essence of how he writes and what he writes about. Interesting. I hope we get to it. I don't know exactly when he wrote it. I'll have to look that up when we're done here and see if we're going to get to that in another year or two with our own podcast. So that kind of rolls into our next segment, the 10-sentence summary. And this was challenging because this book is both long – and at the same time, there's not a lot of movement of the protagonist, right? There's not a lot of action in this. It's a lot of internal dialogue, internal brooding, discussions that take place. So I'm going to do the best I can with this 10-sentence summary. Anyone who is interested in reading this, there's a lot more to it than what I'm about to give. But here we go. The year is 1912, and a young college graduate and librarian named Carol marries a country doctor named Kennicott and is whisked off to the small but growing town of Gopher Prairie, Minnesota. While the town has been described by the good doctor as heaven on earth and a growing important town, that is not the impression Carol takes in upon her arrival. Many of the upper class come out to greet Carol, and she's invited to join the various important societies that make up the upper class social activities like the Jolly Seventeen and the Thermopolis Club. Sadly, Carol can't stand any of it and rebels against the slow, moralistic, classist establishment. Carol tries desperately to bring her version of liberal arts and high-minded ideals to the town, but cannot seem to move the needle, thus fails to make any significant changes to the town. Throughout it all, the author slowly and steadily reveals the hypocrisy and shady underbelly that plagues this town, and by extension, all small towns. Everyone in town is angling for something, be it moral high ground, money, control of small and large councils, or simply juicy gossip. After the death of a friend, and banishment of a young girl Carol related to, and the near scandal of an affair with a young artistic tailor, Carol runs off to Washington to escape the town and its constant prying eyes. The distance gives Carol a clear-eyed view of how universal people are, how stuck in their ways, and how slow the ball of progress rolls. Carol returns to Gopher Prairie, still hating what it is, and still working to improve it, but with a more realistic eye at what is possible and the people behind the hypocrisy. That's the best I can do, Mike, for a like 600-page book <laughs> discussing a hundred different characters, 
in different societies with gossiping and multiple churches who are like fighting each other. I'm like, how do I distill this down? I don't know what you think. If there's anything you feel we need to add before we move on. I don't think I don't think there's any. We could literally write a book about this book, and many, many people have. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there are classes about this book. There's there's no easy way to distill it down. But I want us to just have the plot there for anyone who's not going to read it, and that's fine. We'll talk about our recommendations, and I'll say up front, I recommend this book, but you need to be ready for getting through the book, Um, and. And and I guess with that, maybe we should just jump right into our discussion of this book because because I think that that's my first point here is that I thought it was a well-written book. I thought it had real characters. It had real shades of good and evil. You know, not just this, oh, he's obviously the bad guy because he has a long mustache that he twists and he laughs a lot <laughs> and kidnaps girls for no reason. No, it's – you have all these people who on the surface are everything society expects them to be. And yet when they can get away with it, uh, double cross and backstab and do their best to appear just a little better than they are so they can get slightly ahead in rather meaningless situations. Um, and and I think unlike some of our other authors, it's it's clear that this author crafted his people and his story. He spent some time wanting to work you through uh, introducing these people. And at first they all just seem – very caricature. And and you brought that up is that it, I, I could see where someone, especially who only read the first half of this book and gave up, would say they're all caricatures. But later on, you start getting this payoff when you see some interactions and you're like, and even when he even goes behind their eyes, sometimes in a few chapters, you take over other characters and it gives you a whole nother depth of who they are. That explains a lot of what they did in previous chapters when they were a caricature. So I liked that a lot. Um, Again, the book I thought was very slow to start, but it got faster and faster. And I would say the last quarter of it, um, I didn't want to put it down because I wanted to see how things were going. And and there was action that was happening. You had characters you had grown to like who are just dropping like flies left and right to scandal and typhoid and everything else. It is it's the last quarter is kind of a roller coaster of emotion for me. I don't I don't know what you thought about that. I I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> you know, it's funny. I've got to wonder if the nature of good literature is that you don't come out of it saying this person is the hero completely and that person is the villain completely because this book, it's exactly what you described. Every one of the characters is a fully fleshed character. In fact, you can't really help but see them as their own real person. I think probably because, yes, this was a person he was basing it on. I mean, my guess is that he was able to personalize these people because he knew people exactly like this person or that person. But by the time you're done, so you and I talked about this. We're, we're talking a, a little bit before we were uh, in the last quarter of the book. And, and I was saying, look, this is a slog. This is, this is a hard read. You know. And we've both read books that are thousands of pages, but this one was tough. But then we're texting in that last quarter, and there was this moment, and I don't want to do a spoiler, uh, but I'll say there was this really horribly sad moment. And for the first time, I've got to say in, in years, I teared up a little bit because as I read this book, this character who was maybe this character and another character attached to her, which were maybe some of the happiest in the book, right? Almost unimpeachable in, in how happy they were and nothing really stained them. Some things happened. And I felt not necessarily like I was missing a friend, but like a part of me had suddenly just folded over 
And I haven't felt that way about a book in, in years. So I feel like those first two thirds of the book were almost lulling you into who the people were, not who the characters were. So that by the time you were at the end, all of a sudden you're in this place and it was shocking, but it was also touching. I think the word I kept thinking of was affecting. This was a very affecting book because sometimes you hated it. Sometimes you didn't like it. Sometimes it was funny. Sometimes it was okay, but in whatever way it was, it affected me. And it seems like it affected you similarly. Yeah, I would say it had a very modern feel in that in my mind, and this is entirely incorrect, but in my mind, the modern books have more shades of the good guys do lose half the time and the bad guys do win half the time. There is no clear good guy. We have a lot of more anti-heroes now. You know, that's been a big trend in the last 15 years, so especially in films, is the anti-hero. I wouldn't necessarily say we have an anti-hero here, although I guess we could talk about that, but you certainly don't have the clear good guy and clear bad guy, as you said. And in fact, the side characters who you really grow to like and go, all right, there's a good person in town. There's someone who is going their own way, but doing right by themselves and doing right by the people they care about. When they get brought low by this system, it is crushing. It was really crushing. And there there are two times that happens in the book that, that I noticed that I almost stopped and just kind of put my Kindle down for a minute and thought, man, that sucks. That really sucks. And I, and I was really upset because you had a character who left the book who I wanted to see continue to grow or do something or fight back or be that hero who stands up and makes a point. But that's not real life. And I think that maybe that's what the author was getting at is that you're trying to fight a system that's so much bigger than you, that's so much more established than you, that there is no, oh, one man can make a stand and change a town. No. And that's probably maybe the lesson at the end too, is that all progress is slow. All progress requires you just ask questions and you wait it out and you ask questions and you raise your kids a little better and a little better. And as one person in the book says, and maybe in 20,000 years, it'll be better instead of the 200,000 years it would have been, which is- <laughs> which was a little depressing, <laughs> but maybe more realistic. And maybe that's what I liked about it is that it wasn't a, I mean, as much as I enjoy the concept of throwing a ring into a volcano and then suddenly the sky clears and all evil is wiped out from the world, that's not where we live. And, <laughs> <laughs> and never has been. Right. So I, I pulled out a quote. I went on Goodreads just to see what other people had, had said about the book to see if that anyone made any interesting points. And there was a very long review that I liked a lot by a gentleman named Paul Bryant. And he wrote it back in 2013. I seriously doubt he will ever listen to this podcast. But if he does, thank you, sir, for, for, for writing what you did. But at the end of it, he, here's how he wrapped up his review. And he gave it four stars. He wrote, quote, immersive novels are not read for the plot, but for the forensic detail of the lives lived. Because of that, they run the risk of boring us rigid. They're the slow, heavy beasts, the dray horses of literature. They have to win you over. Main Street won me over. In the end, I love it. Whew. Ain't going back to read another Sinclair Lewis novel anytime soon. <laughs> but yeah, end quote. <laughs> and I think that summed up me too, as I thought, I'm glad I read this book. I'm not going to open up his next book right now. I don't have another month of two hours a night <laughs> <laughs> f 
forcing my way through the novel. So I, I, I believe you agree with that. So I've got to tell you, one of the I didn't think this until now, but one of the most challenging ways to read a book has got to be seeing the percentage counting down. We've joked around this before, <laughs> but, but the fact that you read ten pages and it's the same percent is just that's <laughs> yeah. harsh. But I sit down and I read, and I have to put it down because the kids call or something, and I'm like, it says the same number. At least if it's a page count, the number goes up. But when it's percentage, and and for anyone reading off of Gutenberg Project, which I heartily recommend. Oh, absolutely. Um, but the, the last like 15, 20 pages is the extra licensing that they have. So I keep thinking, all right, maybe the book only ends at like 95%. I don't have to go all the way to 100. I might, <laughs> I might be closer than I thought. And that's true. This one ended at 97%. It made you really want it. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, I think amounts to about 600 additional pages. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two or three things that, that I did want to toss out. One, I think one of the reasons that I, I might have been so affected by this myself, and Jen, I'm not going to speak for you, but I think we're in somewhat similar places. I recently moved from a more urban area to a more suburban area. Very different people, very different way of life. I have a young son. There's fewer people around. It's a different life. And I don't think twice about it, but you know, I was out for the last four days, every day, blowing snow off my driveway. And you feel the weight of something on your shoulders, something that doesn't necessarily weigh you down when you're in your 20s or your teens or something. But as you get older, uh, and of course, I'm always speaking from, from my age, right? 39 now, but you start to notice that you're noticing things. You know, like, oh man, is this ever going to end? Is it always going to snow? Is this every year? Is this every year until I die? Now you could say it's a sense of mortality, which it probably is, but you see it almost a little bit more in some ways where it's, it's more like, Hey, what am I doing? You know, do I have this purpose? You can call it a midlife crisis or something. And I think we do generally, but I've got to say, so the main character, Carol, you know, sort of the main character reaches this point, John, you'll enjoy this of, um, agnorisis where she really has an understanding towards the end of the book of where she is in her own life. I can't say she's entirely happy or, or not happy, but she starts to have a better understanding of where she is. And I think that was something that really stood out to me. It, it sort of personalized it to me because every day when I wake up and, you know, especially with COVID, we're home all the time, you know, and I, I love being home with my son and I love being home with my wife, but there are times you just look up at the sky at night and you say, man, this is just this tiny moment. And these are all my moments and they are tiny in the grand scheme of things. And no matter where you are or what you think about or what your life is, that's what it is. And this book over the course of all those pages, I think kind of got me there, you know, where, where I was almost seeing it from Carol's perspective. And I've got to say, and I give him a lot of credit from her husband's perspective too. I mean, it's funny, you don't see him as a point of view character very often. Sometimes you do, but not very often. But there are two sides of almost the same coin. And she didn't think so at first, and maybe they weren't at first, but they grew into that same coin. So you see it from both sides where he is a contented man in some ways. And for her, contentment is an enemy. The last thing that, that I would throw out, and John, I've just got to harken back to what you were saying about he's a great author. I couldn't agree more. And and I've got to tell you, just because I, I took, I think I told you, I took like 50 or 60 notes in this thing. It's way too many notes, but there are some things that were hilarious. Just, just a couple quotes from her. So 
So she's describing some of the women in the town. She says, or creamy skinned fat women smeared with grease and chalk, gorgeous in the skins of beasts and the bloody feathers of slain birds, playing bridge with puffy pink nailed jeweled fingers, women who after much expenditure of labor and bad temper still grotesquely resemble their own flatulent lapdogs. Okay, so all I put was ouch. Then she has one more she has one more sentence a few a few pages later, I think pages. There's this boy about town who's a troublemaker who pops up here and there and his mother's super proud of him. And of course he's just a waste of space. So the author writes, he was in fact a museum specimen of what a small town, a well-disciplined public school, a tradition of hearty humor and a pious mother could produce from the materials of a courageous and ingenious mind. Oh man. (laughs) It was such a backhanded approach to the descriptions. It, It was really, really well done. You know, and, and the funny thing is there were times when it was seemed long winded, you know, and, and it was funny because I read another review where someone said, if Carol escaped from the house without first describing to you every piece of furniture in it, you got lucky as a reader. And I would probably agree with that aspect. At the same time, though, I think that if you, you know, knocked out 200 pages, right, you edited it down because you wanted to make a Reader's Digest version and you just said the people in town were nice on the surface, but mean underneath. It wouldn't really sink in later on. And we're like, okay, well, you learn to deal with that, right? But having to go through all those conversations, all those you know, slight digs here and there, all those probing questions, um, going through all of that yourself, you felt in her shoes how it felt to be in that small town, in that small prying-eyed town. So, so I think it was. I think it was a. Bold choice by the author, I guess some would say. Um, either that or he just he wanted to really make you feel how he felt his childhood, his rearing in this town was. And the best way to do it was to describe all the things that he witnessed while he was growing up, I guess. <laughs> you know, so something that really stood out to me, and I, I didn't mention it, I think, in the last novel we reviewed. Occasionally, some of these authors get into this habit of uh, writing a character who speaks colloquially, and they try to right in the way the person speaks. And at least some of them have done it in such an obnoxious way that I just glossed over some of what they were saying. What he, but they would shorten it, right? So it would be, oh, howdy, ma'am, you gotta... And then the author would cut it off and say, and various other things he said. Interestingly, this book does similar stuff, very much writes uh, in the words or the tone of the person who's speaking, but it doesn't cut off. It goes through, you can be reading two pages of somebody's dialogue. And I've got to say, I didn't think it would, but I got into it. Uh, There was a character late in the book who, uh, there was an automobile man. There was a businessman who blew into town and they were talking, talking, talking. But as you read it, it's almost melodic. And I think he's got to have based some of these on actual people because I could bear it. I could read it. I didn't feel talked down to by the author. I felt as though he was an angry lens into a life that he was sharing with us from a previous time or just existed in his mind, I guess. Yeah. I would say the times when he wanted to add in the various uh, dialects from the different, especially he had a lot of Swedes and a lot of Germans. He talks about it all the time and he put that in there. In general, when an author does that, I hate it. But I think the reason it worked in this book is there were times that it almost made the communication challenging. So again, you felt like you were in the protagonist's shoes of, I've got to get used to the way these people talk, not just the the church people, but also the local farmers who are new to the country, are doing their best to speak English. And you're with Carol or with the doctor trying to figure out, 
what the hell are they saying? And so I was like, <laughs> there's a couple of times I rolled back and had to reread it. And in my mind, it was the same thing of, I'm sorry, can you say that again? <laughs> I thought it was actually, again, in most cases, it annoyed me when other authors did it. I think if instead I was in the mindset of, I'm trying to sink down into this town, that choice worked. And I agree with your take that I'm sure these are based on some true stories. Like one of my notes was, uh, the moral hypocrisy is so strong, so obvious, and yet so believable. I'm sure it's based on true stories. That was, oh, that was yeah. the note I took myself, that just these random gossiping, these random times when the ladies talk about how, well, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. We're certainly going to talk about it as if it is, yeah. and we're going to judge people. Oh, I'm sure it's not true at all, but we're going to judge her based on this gossip because that's what we do here. You know, and I've got to say, now I've I've found parallels in most of the previous books to modern day. I think you could probably read any of these books at any given decade, and you're going to find some parallels. But this one particular, and also from the author himself, right? So he wrote other books that are considered very parallel today. I found quite a few things in there that were either seeds or directly aligned with the same political conversations we have today, with the same divisions we have today, not just city to suburbia to rural, not just gossip to the Puritan standpoint to the the idea of trying to be a better person but failing, but so many of the things we talk about. And that one stood out to me too, because it's yeah, – I was just reading an article about me too. Right. And and all of the movements going on today. A lot of this drew from that. But it also struck me again, period of time, right? So suffrage was a thing. They were still she actually she writes about this, or Carol becomes somebody who tries to become passionate, although she admits she's not that passionate. Yeah. <laughs> about women's suffrage. I think she always viewed herself as the kind of person who would be passionate. But <laughs> wasn't act if you get what i'm saying is that it's like the people are like i'm the kind of person who would really enjoy opera do you go well no i can't stand it but i want to be known as the kind of person who would like opera that's absolutely in fact when she joined the library committee in her town she was so sure she was the most well read she was certain that she would come in and blow them away and it turns out she was not the most well read and she was not so well informed but by the end of it, she found another way to be superior. Well, yeah. you know, they know the words, but I know the meaning. <laughs> In terms of parallels, you're absolutely right. In fact, many of the notes that I took were things that I grabbed that I, I said, you know, could be pulled out now and dropped into a magazine article today and would be take I mean, you could just drop them in. They they're perfect parallels. You know, like like the first one I grabbed was very early in the book. Quote Children, yes, she wanted them, but she was not quite ready. She had been embarrassed by Kennicott's frankness, but she agreed with him that in the insane condition of civilization, which made the rearing of citizens more costly and perilous than in any other crime, it was inadvisable to have children until he made more money. <laughs> they talked about that when you and I were young, is the sheer cost of children, and maybe it's not a good economic decision. I have friends who talk about the economic decision of having kids, and here we are in 1920. So what that tells you is people always worry about whether or not they're going to have enough money to raise kids. That's just a universal truth. That's and right. yet people continue to do it and have done it for millions of years. <laughs> <laughs> Since the advent of the race. Yep. <laughs> the species, I should say. Another one, a quick quote I grabbed was uh, 
on fear mongering. And there were several of those those interesting fear mongerings. One was a quote, and let me tell you that while folks are fussing about what they call economics and socialism and science and a lot of things that are nothing in the world but a disguise for atheism, that could have been today. That, that probably was been, today. I, somewhere on Facebook, those words are written on someone's wall. It's it's just the way things work. It it, 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 it a lot of it. Uh, another quote: Everyone who doesn't love the bankers and the grand old Republican Party is an anarchist. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there you are. That's okay. That's that's not John saying that. That's that's a book from 1921 discussing the views of all of the rural farmers in Minnesota. Nothing changes, Mike. It's been 100 no, years. Nothing it, it changes. It really doesn't. So, <laughs> so I'm going to take a quick turn on this because one of the look, I'll be honest, aside from the length which I can't really criticize because I couldn't even begin to write something like this myself. <laughs> I think unless I just transcribed like it's six months of my life. The one critique I did have of him, and I don't know if it's a bad thing or a good thing. I see what some of the reviewers meant. There were times where you could tell by the passion of his writing that he was embedded in a character, mostly Carol, some other ones occasionally, but it would get to the point where it was more of a polemic and he would pull out of a character and be making more of a statement of his own. No, I didn't always notice it because it was so passionate. But then occasionally I would say, hey, wait a minute, this is an omniscient narration. This is not Carol. This is the guy giving his opinion. Now, I found it interesting. In fact, those were some of the most insightful areas because it did turn into his perspective on things, but it definitely was not totally Carol because Carol was still embedded in her own mind and frequently ran into the limits of that. You know, I, I appreciated the fact that he didn't paint her as good or bad. He you saw what she did and what she didn't do and why and flaws. But in his omniscience, in some of those passages, it definitely was a little bit jarring from time to time. I don't know if you saw that. You know, I had to decide at times when there was a lot of repeated dialogue. And I couldn't tell if it was that the author was just bringing it back around to make a point or he was stuck in the protagonist's head and she was stuck on a point. Or if it was that the chapters were written separately and he didn't editing error, I, I doubt it. I think it was done to drive home a point again and again. But there were a couple of times like, yeah, I know. We've been over this. Yeah, we heard it already. Yeah, I know. We've been over this. Carol, quiet <laughs> <laughs> So discussing some of the other characters real quick, I liked Dr. Kennicott. I liked him as a character a lot because I think that he was a very – centralist character what i thought is he really stood for a realistic view of the world he had his flaws he absolutely had his flaws i would say he had a lot less flaws than most people in town yes for sure he walked a careful line of i want to be moral but not the moral the way some of the people in town believe is moral right the, the moral turned sin yeah yeah i, I want to be educated but i don't want to be the don't do anything worth a damn educated that he saw i think a lot of in the in the very artsy liberal arts people who wanted to come to town including his wife at times so i liked him as a character and i thought that he was i probably where the author felt that he was standing a lot i mean he's probably a little more right leaning than the author at the same time though he did try to encompass the and people are people and i'm going to do the best i can and we're going to continue to move forward kind of attitude of the book so i, I don't want to get too psychological about it but sinclair lewis's father was a physician and a strict disciplinarian for sure. But I hear those words coming out of maybe his father's mouth. 
you know, maybe it's a conglomeration of different characters because you can tell that he writes with a fondness for this character. He doesn't see it. He's not writing it from Kendicott's perspective, but he sees that perspective and it becomes a part of who he is or rather who Carol is throughout the book. And I've got to say at the end of the book, so there were two parts that I just found, I'm not going to say tear jerking, but again, very affecting. Uh, the first is what we talked about before with two characters, uh, which was just painful to read. And then towards the end of the book, almost to the absolute end of the book, Kendicott is, I can't call it self-sacrificing because it wasn't exactly self-sacrificing, but he is accepting of something that clearly is painful to him. And instead of lashing and raging and attacking, he tries to explain that pain from a place of love. and. You so seldom see that because it's such an actual human thing to do. And it was touching on both sides, on Carol's side, on his side, in their story, in the bigger picture of where they were in their lives, that it's like you might know people like this. You'd never know that these things happen to them or with them, but you might know people like this. And it, it was just stunning to me. I think I know the scene, and if, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's when he comes across Carol in a position she does not want to be in, and you're expecting there to be fireworks. You're expecting there to be screaming, and there's not. And I think maybe that's what made me love the character so much, is, is how he very coolly, calmly dealt with a situation that was very hard for him emotionally. So no, I, I agree with you entirely. That was one of my favorite scenes of the book. It's part of that section, you know, that last third of the book that I really, really enjoyed, where I think characters really came to life. And that was definitely one of those scenes. Great character. Great character. Whereas Carol is infuriating. She is, <laughs> you know, as, as a protagonist, I guess she's the hero of the book. And she, but she is just infuriating sometimes in, in how she doesn't stick to anything very long. She expects instant wins. I talked about how no one escapes the author's gaze, right? Those who are on the hard right, those who are the bankers, those who are the business owners. No one looks good in the light that this author shines upon them, and, and neither does she. There's a scene where she wants to improve the town, and everyone's like, you know, being penny pitchy, no, no, no. And so she has an idea, and she just walks into the house of the richest man in town and says, hey, uh, you have like two, you're worth like $2 million, right? And he says- yeah. She's like, well, give it to me. And and he laughs. He's like, you're worse than the preacher. Ha ha. And she's like, no, no, no I'm serious. I mean, you, you, what are you going to do with it? You can't take it with you. Give it to me and I'll, I'll do my project. And he's like, get out of my house. So it was. <laughs> Although he was relatively polite about it. She was so naive about how the world works. And, and maybe that's it is that, you know, you were talking earlier about the challenges of kind of looking at your life and here you are in this position place and and are you where you expect it to be? Carol's biggest problem was she never let the reality sink in and overtake what can be your teenage dreams of where you think you're going to be. Everyone has this image of how life's going to be when they're 15. Carol just never gave up on that in any sort of, no, that is nice when you don't know anything to think this is how the world's going to work. But now you have to accept the smaller wins that are actually bigger, more meaningful wins in your life. And she just never gets to that point until the very end, until she heads off to Washington. And I think seeing all the people 
who are all ants in a very large machine who at the time is dealing with war issues, seeing who's relative to what and brings home a lot of that big fish, small pond, small fish, big pond situation that she just never got over. So so there's two things on that vein that I that I had running through my head. First off, anytime she's confronted with a, a really serious problem or or this tremendous unhappiness, she travels or she wants to travel. She runs so away. She's, she runs away. She's fleeing. Now, most of the time, she wants Ken, most of the time, she wants Kennecott to come with her as a little bit of a security blanket, right? Well, money too. <laughs> a green security blanket. <laughs> it's not $2 million, but it's still pretty solid. So towards the end there, uh, that whole Washington trip, she's fleeing for sure. But something did change with that trip. And I think the change was part of the transformation to a certain extent, because I don't even think by the end of the book, she's she's totally at ease with things. But I think that was part of her transformation. And you notice that a part of her security blanket was not there with her that time. And because of that, it allowed her to, I think in some ways mature. But I, I kept thinking about her. So you know these, if you read kid's novel, right? Or like a, a Christmas book to your kid, you're reading it right in, in two ways because you're reading it as the adult reading it, but then you're also reading it from the perspective of a, of a kid. You know, like okay, believing in Santa. You know, the, the ringle and the jingle of jingle bells, and and in some ways, I think most adults, whether we admit it or not, you have a little twinge because wouldn't you love to be back there for a moment? Well, yes and no. No, I'm an adult. Yes, I can do all these things. Yes, I have a lot of responsibilities, but you long for the innocence of it where you don't know all the other stuff that weighs down on you. And it seems to me that this character was like a character who got to that point, but never wanted to lose the innocence of it and was so desperately afraid of it that she refused to grow up. And she was so afraid of losing what she thought was an appreciation of beauty, which Look, in some cases it was. She's not always wrong when she talks about the dullness and the ugliness. She actually has a great quote that I won't get into, but it was about the dullness of things and how the town made dullness into godliness. Um, (laughs) Harsh, which is what I wrote. But she was so desperately afraid of that, but she was also too old to be that innocent and she knew it. So she ran into this wall where she actually put herself into a bind that she could not escape until she found some way out of it. The twisting and the turning was almost draining to read. I mean, I don't know how you felt about this, but I felt like dwelling in her mind was exhausting because you want to take charge of it and say, no, do it this way. You can do it that way. But then you also, you can't help but understand where she comes from maybe half the time. (laughs) No, it was hard to read her because you know how I take on projects and how I keep myself busy. And so I see something and I jump into it and I could see her jump into it. But at the first moment of things getting hard, she gave up. She'd be two days into a project. Three people said no. She's like, well, I guess we're not fixing town hall or I guess we're not fixing the school or I guess we're not fixing the library. She just gave up so immediately. And I was never sure if part of that was that she was protected in a cocoon because the way society treated the wife of a upper middle class, lower upper class family is that she wasn't allowed to work. She talks about that. I, I can't, I'm not allowed to get a job. And so because she didn't have a job, she never had any appreciation for the flow of money in the town, which meant that no one took her seriously. It doesn't mean that she wasn't smart enough to necessarily understand it, but she didn't have that that intrinsic appreciation. She did work before she got married, but it was kind of like that first job you get at a college where, of course, you're broke, but you're perfectly fine with it, but you make no plans further than the next payday. She didn't have any of those long-reaching goals, whereas her husband was talking about what do you think I'm trying to do here? I'm trying to build up a practice. I'm trying to build up money so that we can retire. 
I don't want to be working when I'm 80 and you trying to find me a job as a night watchman so I don't starve to death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she just didn't appreciate all the people who were working. She talks about how the men are complaining because they're in offices all day long and that can't be that hard. And then she gets a job at an office. She's like, this is draining. This is exhausting. (laughs) I think she grew on that trip. I think you make a point about her not being with her husband, but at the same time, she was responsible for herself and all that goes with it. Responsible for finding a nurse, responsible for paying rent and finding a decent place to live, responsible for her own schedule. And the weight of the world forces you to be more realistic about how the world works. And so she was cocooned back in Gopher Prairie. And when she broke out of that, she can now go back with those clear eyes. You know, and she and she does go back and she talks about how now I look at this aunt who is one of the worst characters. And I'll say <laughs> the, the, the aunt and uncle come to town and they are awful. And and you need to do is you need to picture the aunt and uncle from Harry Potter. That's who these people you know <laughs> the back, Dursleys. You know, it it's it's actually it's Uncle Dursley and like his sister, you know, who comes to town at the beginning of that one one book and or movie, depending on what you saw, and does nothing but complain and run her mouth and tell you how the world should be, and you're like, I hate her so much. And that's who these people are. And they come and they live with them for a few months. And you could <laughs> see how that would be atrocious. But when she goes back, she's like this is who she is. And she's just running her mouth because she's she has nothing else to do. She has nothing else in her life. So I'll just humor her and smile and know that it doesn't mean anything. And it took her escaping to come back to view that. Otherwise, she took everything personally because she had nothing else going on. You know, I, I that's perfectly said because she did everything was personal. She couldn't separate people speaking about things from a personal insult, a slight, or a compliment. There was no separation for her. And when you were just talking about with the aunt, there was one line, again, something that just hit me out of nowhere. There was one line where she describes the aunt coming in. She had just returned at the end of the book to Gopher Prairie. And she said, I realized the aunt's coming in here and talking about jam, not because she really wants to sit there talking about jam. She wants me to ask her for the recipe so she can give yeah. me something so we can we can talk about something. And I'm thinking, you know, how many times have we all been in that situation? Oh God, here we are again. But but you know deep inside that there's a there's a reason to do it because they're with the grace of God go we. The other thing I noticed when she went to DC, I think part of her transformation was she did take on responsibility. You're absolutely right. She also got the corresponding mature benefits you get from that. She got to go walking when she wanted. She got to go to restaurants when she wanted. She had friends that she picked and spent time with and got to do things that she chose to do. Whereas when she was back in the town, even as a a youth where the book starts, she never chose those things, or at least she never felt that she could. So in addition to actually having to pay, and having to make do, and having to schedule, and being bored at work, she also realized, wait a minute, there's something that comes along with this, and it's really my agency to be me. And when she was able to do that, and I do give credit to the character, she finally comes back around and says, you know what? I do want to be this person. She has a conversation with a woman uh, who was a suffragette who was talking about this, and the woman said to her, look, you've got a tough choice. You've got you know Midwestern Puritan and you've got New England Puritan and they're both pancaking down on top of you. I can never do those things because I'm so passionate and devoted to this one cause. But at the same time, I haven't had a kid. At the same time, I've given up everything to do what I do. And she said, you have to decide who you want to be. And Carol says, you know what? Okay. I know who I want to be. I'd rather be the person who goes to the town and persists 
in trying to do things good for everybody than the person who just gives up. And that honestly is, I'm going to call it a repudiation of who she had been, whether or not she realized it. So, I mean, it's interesting. It's like a statement of maturity, which you can't help but be invested in because you literally spent years reading the book to watch her grow up. (laughs) (laughs) It was her life in real time. (laughs) (laughs) Those percents were actually ours. (laughs) Let me ask you one more question and then we kind of wrap this up. How did you feel about the last page of the book? How did you feel about the ending? Okay. So I'm a Tolkien fan. You guys probably know this if you follow us religiously. It reminded me almost of that last page, maybe not quite as trite, but it was almost like, hey, life's happening. <laughs> Here's some things, things happen, you know? And there there were a couple almost false endings behind it, but it's just there. That's the end. And I think, frankly, I don't think there could have been another ending because it would have betrayed the rest of the nature of the book and what the author was trying to do to create too much of a denouement. Instead, it had to be People being people. I, and now it's fresh, by the way. I only stopped reading it this morning. I got to the end of this this morning. <laughs> so I, I, quite honestly, I'm still processing it, but that's more or less how I felt. Now, I'm curious, how did you feel? At first, I thought it was a really interesting end because it just kind of stops. And at the, at the end, Carol is – she's back in the town and she's going off on another one of her rants. And I'm never going to give up about talking about this and talking about that. And I, and I and her husband's like, yeah. So anyway, have you seen my pants? You know, and it, it is very like. <laughs> and actually, not even a paraphrase. I, that's what happened. <laughs> what I liked about that is actually told me they're going to be okay as a couple because he's like, listen, you're always going to be passionate. Just recognize that I'm going to ignore it because you get on your, you get on your high horse and this is who you are and that's fine by me. But seriously, have you seen my pants? Because I, I'm going <laughs> to. Got to wear the pants. (laughs) So I like, I was surprised by the ending, but then I think a lot of people are surprised by a a standard token ending, right? It a ship sails off or the false ending of Fade to Black and back to Hobbiton. So at first I wasn't sure if I liked it, but upon reflection over the last day, because I finished yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, hoity toity. Upon reflection, I like the way that it ended because it almost says things go on and it's going to be okay for them. All right, let's move on because this is one of our longer podcasts and I, I, we could talk about this book for a long time. I'm sure there, well are, worth college, it though. I'm sure there are college courses about it. And let's talk right now, GDD rating. Final segment, we give our rating scheme as a reminder of our grading system, which is both objective and final. We give each book a score of one to 10. Mike, the honor as always is yours, sir. So I've got to give it a 10. It made me wrestle with myself. It made me think about things I hadn't thought about in a while. I didn't always like it, but I loved reading it and I love having read it. So frankly, one of the big reasons he won the Nobel Prize was because of this book and it informed everything else the man did. So this book was really his opus in a lot of ways. And I see why. It is frankly, something that I uh, will not let go of. Now, there's plenty of critiques of it, but to me, it almost felt less like a book and more of an experience that I just lived through. And if there's a bar to be set, I'm pretty comfortable with this one being the bar. Okay. High praise. I give it a nine, just like you. I'm glad I read this book. I think everyone should at some point read this book. It doesn't read like an old book. It reads like a very modern book. It could be published tomorrow and there'd be no difference, no changes needed to be made to this book. 
there were a few times I thought it dragged. It is a longer book. And that's the only reason why I drop it from 10 to a nine is that there are going to be people who just not going to be able to make it to the end. And I read several reviews, people who just couldn't make it to the end. But if you do, I think it has a lot of payoff. I think it's the kind of book that you could sit down, read a chapter, and then put it down for a day or two and think about the stuff that was brought up during that chapter. And you'll be a better person at the end of the year when you've read all of these chapters and gotten through the book. So nine for me, 10 for you. That's uh, the highest rated book we've done thus far on the series. And I hope- By a fair that- amount. And I'm sure it'll continue up and up. Oh, wait, no, we can't go up. Okay, it's only down from here. Good. <laughs> I'm okay with that too. All right, that wraps it up for tonight. Join us next month when we review The Valley of Silent Men by James Oliver Kerwood. A link to the book, as well as our contact information, can be found in the podcast description. Special thanks to our podcast host, Red Circle. To the Joy Drops for the intro and end credit music. And most especially to the Gutenberg Project. And until next month, thank you and good night. Good night.